Welcome to the Young China Watchers podcast. Young China Watchers is a global network of young professionals interested in China. In our 10 chapters around the world, we host events with China experts, fostering the next generation of China thought leaders. My name is Sam Colomby. I'm currently stuck in home quarantine in Hong Kong, but today I'm joined by some of the finest Young China Watchers out there. We have Dev Lewis, Yenching Scholar at Peking University. Hey, Sam. Calling in from Shanghai, right? That's correct. Then we have Tina Li, a political economy consultant calling from Beijing. Hi, everyone. And then we have Julia Chen, public policy researcher at a tech company, also calling from Beijing. Hello. Julia, you just got out of quarantine, right? That's correct. Uh, just as of yesterday. So was that a two-week quarantine like here? Yes. So I had gone back to London at the end of January and then flew back around 21st of March to Beijing. Felt that I needed to try and get back as soon as possible because the number of flights was already decreasing. Situation in Europe was getting pretty bad. And I was worried that if I waited much longer, then I might not be able to get back. Um, as it turned out, about a week after I returned, the borders did close to foreigners. So feel quite lucky to have got back just in time. Uh, but the policy was, once I came back, that all foreigners and Chinese people returning would have to do a two-week mandatory quarantine in a hotel. And we weren't allowed to leave the room, had food and everything brought to us. It was a very interesting experience. Very glad to be out now. I, uh, so I'm in, I'm in home quarantine. And so what they did to me was they gave me this wristband with like a QR code on it. And then they give you about two hours to get home. And then they send you a text message. And, uh, and then you have to, with that text message, it gives you an account. You have to download an app put in your account, scan your wristband, and then it gives you like one minute to walk around your flat. And it sort of picks up these Wi-Fi signals of, of the buildings around you, gets a picture of where you are. And then from then on for two weeks, it, um, it triggers an alarm when you leave that zone. Uh, and if you get caught, I, I just looked it up, if you get caught outside, which a lot of people did, there's a fine of like, I think it's 25,000 Hong Kong dollars. What would that be, like 3,000 US? And I actually, the app didn't work for me. So I called them and they said, they sent me a WhatsApp message. And I, for the past two weeks, three times a day, I've had to share my location on WhatsApp because the app wasn't working for me. I just wondering, how do you get food then? Yeah, so there are organizations that um, can deliver food to you. And then Deliveroo has this option of like no contact delivery. So they just put the food on the ground floor and you have to go get it yourself. So you don't see anyone. Sam, was that for all foreigners, like non-Hong Kong residents? Did even Hong Kong residents who came back to Hong Kong have to use the same wristband system? I think it is for all, because I'm a resident. I'm not a permanent resident, but I am a resident. So for, for us, we could go home and, and do our quarantine. If you didn't, if you weren't a resident, if you were a visitor, you could still come in, but they put you in like a government quarantine and, uh, and they put you there for two weeks and they give you food and everything. So I think a similar situation to what you had, Julia. But, um, but yeah, I was very grateful that I had my residency and I could just go home. So Julia, you just left quarantine and you, have you been out on the streets yet? Yes, I was very excited to be out. And today I went out to a park with a friend and it was really nice. There were 
a fair few people out, uh, probably not as busy as it would be. All the flowers are out and spring is just lovely in Beijing. So just feel like people are uh, getting out and about again and making the most of that. Yeah, Athena, you're in Beijing as well, right? Are you happy to go out every day or are you feeling that people are still staying mostly inside? Yes, and definitely recently Beijing has having been having some nice weathers. Um, you can see there are a lot of families just like go picnicking um, in the park. But from time to time, you can see a couple of menacing looking like uh, uncles. Um, they're just like walking around telling you to put on your mask. Really? So people are calling you out for it? Yeah, definitely. People just like stay away from each other. Put on your mask right now. <laughs> so uh, is there like a, um, I, ju- I just flew in from, from Belgium, right? Two weeks ago. And over there, you can't be with more than two people at the same time. And you have to keep your meter and a half distance, of course. But is that the same in Beijing or have they completely relaxed all restrictions? In the restaurants, you can still see that um, the restaurant owners are super uh, cautious about when people are sitting together. You have to sit like, you can't face each other. You have to like sitting diagonally from each other. And for example, when we were in this like uh, microbrewery, um, they have a section, pretty big hole. Usually you can pack like easily fill 20 people in it. But that that night they were just very strict about only nine people are allowed. And we were sitting in, we have to sit like a like an AA support group. Yeah, I was just going to add that when I was at the park earlier, there didn't seem to be anyone watching out for groups of more than a certain size and no one policing that but there are some parks and tourist attractions that are limiting numbers and making people buy tickets via WeChat in advance and that way they can keep the number of people at about 30% of the full capacity. So there's definitely some uh, caution still in, in certain places and measures such as having your temperature taken before you go into a, a restaurant or a park, um, that's still happening. Dina, I remember you saying also that you you came in from, so you were in Tianjin before, right? And then you came into Beijing. So can you talk a little bit about that system of each region, each uh, province having their own separate measures and how they uh, how they deal with people coming in from different areas, and is that still so, or was that uh, has that been relaxed now? So we come back, came back around the middle of February. So somehow we need to like cross the uh, fire line, <laughs> as we put it, around Mar- uh, February the third. That was the, when the number was really scary to us. So I mean, fortunately, my uh, my supervisor were really accommodating, and we are a small office. Everyone is very close to each other. And my boss was like, just wait for several days. And so like, we'll push, push the day to February the 5th. And uh, the 5th, my boss was like, okay, just get a DD, like inter uh, CD DD. Um, and then like, you can minimize the interaction with people to come back and the, the, the company will reimburse you. I was like, wow, that's super nice. And back then I'll just uh, log on DD app and just only to find out that they cancel all the inter city cab service like dd taxi anything but all right we're stuck other than the bullet train so we changed our date again um middle of february basically i was wearing my swimming goggles uh, with like a pair of plastic gloves and with like double the surgical masks this is how i went to the train station and 
uh, from Tianjin train station, there weren't a lot of people, and people were just basically standing, just very like like particles in the air, just very apart from each other. And that's how we came back to Beijing. And when we came back, the whole so the community, we I mean we had a big community here. So there are different gates. There are like five of six gates, but they sealed up all the gates, only leaving the biggest gate open. And there are people taking your temperature and registering your information and then give you a, like a piece of paper saying that you arrive on this day. And 14 days later, this is the day that you could be allowed to get out. Um, so like the whole process, it's um, scary. But in the meantime, it's pretty like in order, I would say. Yeah. So j- just to be clear, this is this is inner like inner in between cities, right? This is in between provinces. This is not even you coming from abroad. No, this is from Tianjin to Beijing. But back then it was middle of February, so China was the ep- epicenter of the coronavirus, and uh, the international cases were not that uh, you know pronounced back then. Right. So Dev, you're in Shanghai now. What's it like there? Are you are you feeling this? Is it similar to Beijing, or are you, do you have a different experience? Yep, I'm in Shanghai, and I've been here pretty much through the entire uh, epidemic. And I would say things are improving day by day. Um, so Shanghai officially opened for business, I believe, on the 11th of Feb. But I feel like things only really start to visibly improve from around the end of Feb. And about two weeks ago, parks opened, uh, which is a pretty big deal. So, you know, it's interesting hearing about Beijing in Shanghai. I walked through the parks uh, two weeks ago and, and definitely that was the most people I've seen out uh, in a long time. People were still maintaining some social distancing. Uh, so it's possible that there were just less people out. So there's a little bit more space for people to uh, maintain. And also I noticed that square dancing, uh, Guangchengwu, is not uh, allowed yet. So there's a park, Xiangyang uh, Park, close to my place. And every evening there would always be uh, you know, square dancing, really nice. Uh, but that hasn't, I haven't seen that yet. But aside from that, things have been uh, improving. I would say most bars and restaurants that are still in business are, are open. Theaters are still closed. Uh, I think a lot of clubs and sort of quote-unquote entertainment is in a gray area. Gyms opened. My gym opened uh, two weeks ago. And that's been gradually happening. Although there's still limitations on how many people can be in the gym at a, at a certain amount of time. So, uh, But I would say Shanghai is sort of getting back. It's, on its, it's back on its bike again, not at full speed. On the days when there's great weather, um, last weekend, for example, or a couple of weekdays, you, really, you notice a lot more people come out. I think everyone's desperate for some sunshine and for some crowds. Um, I noticed that there were even lines at uh, some hipster coffee shops which was uh, the first time I'd seen that. But uh, yeah, I would say Shanghai is, uh, is on its bike again, which is, which is nice to see, but there's definitely, it's definitely different. Um, and there's definitely a lot of fear and apprehension in the, in the air a little bit. Um, so that hasn't changed yet. Do you feel that the, the restrictions like the square dancing that's banned and things like that, do you feel that that's coming from the people themselves? Are they, are they the ones pushing to keep the, the measures like they are? Or is this a government top-down kind of uh, initiative? Well, the, the, the rule is probably coming from, from the top. But my sense talking to people, whether it's my neighbors, whether it's friends here, is there's very much a sense of apprehension um, among everyone. You know, the, the threat of the second wave is pretty real and everyone's wary about that. 
So you'll notice that at, you know, at a lot of restaurants, you'll see a lot of people in the day, you know, presumably people who work close by. But in the evenings, um, it's you know, at less than half capacity because I think everyone's just choosing to go home and play it safe. Um, I definitely think, you know, even when you, when you text people and you're sort of trying to make plans and there's still some sense of awkwardness. It's almost like the social norms have changed a little bit. You, you don't know whether it's an irresponsible thing to even initiate a sort of meeting with people. And you also are apprehensive about where you meet. And I don't think people have quite worked it out yet. Uh, there's still, I don't know how long it's going to take. It's already, it's been about a month, I would say. So, you know, I would say most of March, people have been coming out, uh, but with a lot of apprehension and limiting, limiting themselves as much as possible. Now, uh, Dev, as the only um, non-Chinese, non-ethnically Chinese person on the call, uh, aside from me, do you feel that some of that apprehension is turned towards you because people know that this is a second wave this is foreigners coming in or at least it's overseas chinese coming home it's foreigners coming back bringing the virus with them so do you feel that some of that apprehension is turned towards you you know i have naturally been following this question and i know on twitter there's some people who've posted pictures and videos and stories and i've noticed that a lot of that happens to be in beijing not that it's never happened in shanghai in my experience, I, I have to be, I'll say no. Uh, and I have, and I am sort of wary about that. And I'm always sort of keeping my eyes and ears open for anything that I hear or see just out of my own curiosity to see how, you know, the neighborhoods and all react. But I would say mostly it's been really positive. In fact, like my or like the sort of social community office, which is in charge of uh, disseminating things like masks and generally making sure that you know the everyone in their area is uh, is healthy and and uh, not showing any symptoms they've been very friendly to me they would always call me to give me my masks they never asked me too many questions about you know i mean they they know i've registered with, with them end of january and they've never asked me since you know have you left uh, i have not got any questions about that it's been pretty relaxed but i would say shanghai tends to be pretty exceptional from the rest of china and my experience so far, I feel like he's bearing that out. Uh, but I know, I mean, from people I know directly as well, that, you know, that's not been the same in Beijing, where there have been restaurants and some places that have refused foreigners. Uh, I am thankful and grateful so far that I haven't experienced something like that. I would like to um, add on Dev's point. I've seen a lot of friends, um, international expats who stay in Beijing, but because they have a foreign face, um, unfortunately, they got asked more questions than their Chinese counterpart. But in the meantime, it's kind of unfortunate that like when people are in fear, xenophobia is the first reaction. It's like what Chinese face people encountered in Western countries when Wuhan was the epicenter of the world. I mean, by the end of the day, humans are all fallible. Yeah, um, I, I, th I, thought, I thought that was very, um, I thought that was very ironic to see how Chinese people were, I mean, physically attacked even in Europe and in the West in general, when it was still the Wuhan virus. And now that it's in the West, you sort of see that reaction coming back. Um, it's an interesting point. Tina, you said earlier that your your boss, your work was very accommodating to your situation. Are you working from home right now? Or are you going into work? What is your current work arrangement? 
at the moment because um, China is encouraging people to come back to work um, and then we are you know very cautious but in the meantime it's time for us to slowly go back to office so to achieve a balance we have like me for example I need to go to the office to work three days a week and the rest two days uh, I can just work from home. How about you Julia? I'm quite lucky in that my company is a large international firm and so we're quite used to working via Zoom and you know, doing a lot of calls and discussions that way. So some of the offices in China have now returned to operation that I think because my office is a bit more open plan potentially, uh, for some reason it's still not meeting the requirements for allowing people to go back to the office. So we are still currently working from home. And so these requirements, this is set by senior management or is this set by the government? I believe it's the government. Dev, how about you? As we said, you're a Yenching scholar, but do you also work and how is that going for you right now? Yeah, so in my situation, hasn't changed in a way. I've always been working remotely for my job, but I do go to an office a couple of times a week. And for us, when you get to the office, right from when the office first opened around mid-February, um, you had to fill out a form noting that you had been in Shanghai for longer than 14 days and uh, you had to do a temperature check every day and that hasn't changed from then until now. You also have to, you had to log in your personal information, like your mobile phone number and your passport information. So they sort of can contact you at any point. And I know that, so seeing other officers that work in the same building, that they encourage people to leave uh, as early as possible because they also disinfect the office every evening. So that all that hasn't changed uh, since the start. The only thing maybe it's gotten a bit more relaxed for instance, initially, it would be the office administrators who would uh, scan you for your temperature check. Now you just do it for yourself, do it by yourself. And there's almost like a sort of honor system. But yeah, that's um, the sort of monitoring your whereabouts is, has stayed pretty much throughout. So wherever you go to any major residential areas, I, I visited a friend a week ago. I had to show that I had not left Shanghai for the last 14 days using uh, the health code app. I also had to log my personal information. When I go to the gym, I have to log my information at the entrance of the building. So that stuff is still in place, but it's flowing now. Right. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned an app earlier, and I know that you work in tech as well. So I'm interested to hear from you. Have you seen any any adjustments that tech companies or other companies have made to adapt to that new situation? Yeah, it's uh, definitely been a story uh, through quarantine. So the, the app that I mentioned called uh, Jenkang Ma or Health Code, it was initially pioneered in, in Hangzhou. And now, uh, as of late February, it's now supposed to be recognized nationally. So the app is co-developed by Tencent and I think it's AliCloud. And they essentially aggregate data from companies as well as various government ministries. Specifically, they've named health, uh, railways, aviation, uh, and then a couple of others. And the idea is that it shows you a green, red, orange, and essentially that's your sort of health pass to leave the house and visit any sort of high dense uh, places. So that, that health code has now become like your de facto passport wherever you go. And if you don't have that, you won't be able to enter a residential complex. You won't be able to go to the gym. You won't be able to ride the subway. It's pretty essential. 
apart from that, I know during the quarantine, there were apps like Tencent had one where you could check to see for confirmed cases around you. So you could literally see yourself on a map and then it would show you where any confirmed cases are. So I guess presumably you could avoid them or avoid those areas. And then there was also one which is pretty neat, which allowed you to check based on your train number if there's been any confirmed cases from people who took that same train as you. So I had traveled into Shanghai on the 27th of January from another city. And so I was able to check my train to know for sure that I had no close contact with someone who was later confirmed which is pretty important considering the sort of 14-day incubation period. I would say those during quarantine were important, and now it's all about the Health Code app. There's not a lot of information out there at the moment, but we know that it's going to be something that all other countries are doing as well. And so it's interesting to see how different places implement it. I know here, like I mentioned, it's essentially your pass to go to uh, a lot of places. Thina, how about in Beijing? Have you noticed, are they using that health app as well that they're using in Shanghai? Yes, um, definitely. There's something called Healthy Beijing. It's a local um, app that in Beijing, like um, you can just basically do a lot of the, you know, interactions with the uh, police, etc. So they incorporate a health co- like health QR code uh, with the uh, Healthy Beijing app. In the meantime, you can just like one can search Alipay uh, for this uh, Health Beijing function as well so you can just like do some verification of your identity and they will show you like your green or different degree of health risk um, and then a lot of the apartments if you are visiting friends they are fancier um, apartments have a, like a guard downstairs and they will ask you to scan code and sometimes like for a lot of foreign foreigners they because they you know you, using alipay one has to have like a Chinese ID card or some internationals weren't able to use Alipay very well. But for that instance, China Mobile and Unicom has a QR code as well. So they can scan it based on the phone data, the SIM card data for the past 14 days, the QR code will tell if this person has been outside of Beijing or not. And then in the meantime, there has been one sensational case of a asymptomatic case I believe like that person was healthy and followed the protocol the whole time, had a health code driving from Wuhan back to uh, Lanzhou where that person uh, works. Throughout the whole drive, that person has been wearing a mask and having the green health code. But when that person arrived in Lanzhou, that person got tested positive for coronavirus. And people just don't know why. And you know, start questioning, is the health code 100%? Or what is the situation with this particular case? That's a very sensational uh, anomaly. Tina, you mentioned the health code, and I know that they gather a lot of, some data also comes from each neighborhood's Zhuihui, because they would be the guys who would be able to vouch when you actually moved in. And, you know, in my experience here in Shanghai, I've, you know, had to have quite a bit of interaction with my local societal community office, I think that's how you translate it. And they're the ones who checked me in when I first got back. They also uh, have been pretty useful by giving us five masks every week. Um, and they'd always call me every week to say my next uh, set of masks is ready for pickup. And just generally, I noticed that they also do sometimes door-to-door checks to make sure that, you know, you're fine and, every, and you know, generally to check that no one's showing any symptoms. And I was wondering if in Beijing as well, because I know here a lot of people's quarantine look very different based on their office. Like 
I probably had a very relaxed Shaochu where I never had to, they would never give me a pass and there was not much restriction on my entry and exit, but other people had different restrictions. Was it very different for you in Beijing? Yes. Um, it sounds like in Beijing situation is a little bit uh, stricter than in Shanghai because I think two days ago we spoke with our friends in Shanghai and Shanghai is basically right now hustle bustling back to normal but Beijing is still slowly getting there. I really agree with you in terms of the uh, the degree of the quarantine or the control it depends on um, you know different community and community administration. Uh, in my Shanghai, my um, community, they issue you a pass. People from outside without a pass cannot enter. During my quarantine, basically in the middle of February, our community administrators need to call us twice a day or ask me to text our body temperature. And then slowly getting into the end of uh, February, when China was more concerned about the uh, what they call quote-unquote imported cases and then our duo who is calling us because my fiance is foreigner calling me and calling my fiance saying that you don't have plans to travel right you haven't have traveled you haven't traveled right <laughs> internationally right we're like no 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 we're fine we're fine so they're definitely extra cautious um you know depending on where the uh, situation of the virus is yeah, and I'll just add something to to that. My experience has been pretty uh, similar in our Xiaochu. I think it's an important point to really note how much this whole surveillance and tracing effort has kind of relied on these local committees and local volunteers. Uh, we've talked a bit about tech solutions, but a lot of it is very low tech. It's just about people mobilizing and manning gates and taking down written information. And on the day that I arrived back in Beijing, I had three separate phone calls from different committees and groups. I'm not even sure who they all were. Uh, someone from my Xiaochu, someone maybe from the wider Jiedao, uh, the broader neighborhood, and someone else I can't even remember. But they all needed basically the same information from me, flight numbers, the seat numbers that I'd uh, sat in, in on each of the different flights to get back, passport number, all that. Um, I'd previously also had messages from Zuru, the company that I rent my flat from. They were asking when I was planning to be back. They'd clearly been uh, mobilized by the local committees or government. So definitely a really huge people-based effort and uh, I found it quite funny when I returned to my Xiaochu yesterday and had to show the certificate that I had been given upon leaving the hotel where I was quarantining. So they took that certificate from me to make a copy and then uh, they said to me, uh, was your boyfriend not uh, waiting at home for you? And I kind of had a moment of confusion because I live with a man who is not my boyfriend, but just a flatmate. And they clearly knew that he had left for the day. So, you know, wondering why he wasn't there waiting for me. And uh, it's just quite funny to think that they, you know, knowing all the ins and outs of people's whereabouts, their daily activity in a way that would really be completely unacceptable back in London where I'm from. 
I recently translated an article um, on this very analog collection. And I've heard that apparently, according to the article, that there's a rise in phone scams and people are suspecting this might be due to all this information that's been stored now by every grocery store and every residential community. And it's possible that some information has just gotten leaked to, you know, either sold on the black market. And now that there are a lot of people who are getting calls with and identified by very intimate information that they are very confused about. So I wonder if this is, this could be sort of something that blows up further on in the future. Yeah, it sounds like you all have the same experience, whether that's in Shanghai or Beijing. So this sounds like a very Chinese solution to this to this problem, right? And also something that I guess the, the Chinese government is uniquely equipped to do. But like you said, Julia, this this kind of uh, intrusive surveillance, it, ju- it just wouldn't fly in, in the West. So to what extent do you think these solutions will translate to other countries that are suffering, you know, are, go- are going through the same process that China is going through right now? Um, I can jump in first in terms of tracking potential infected people. This China is this is not unique. It's epidemic control. This is epidemic control one on one. Like uh, countries like Australia and Europe, a lot of countries in European unions have the same measures to track um, the disease, the spread of diseases. It's a public health control measures. Like uh, for example, I believe it's. England, they are using people's uh, phone uh, data, basically collected from different towers to see a person's movement uh, trajectory. So in that sense, that's not, that's not very different. The question is like, you know, um, as a lot of people in European Union have been asking, we feel safe with this uh, tracking method. But after that, what are the, you know, European Commission or like, whoever have the data going to do with the data? I feel like in Europe there are various apps and technological solutions being developed. I think that in general there is still a desire to make sure that these apps are compliant with GDPR, that there is consent involved. I believe there's an app in the UK that allows you to enter your symptoms and I think it can let you look at whether there are people in your area with uh, symptoms or confirmed cases, but it is a voluntary consent-based thing. It's not something everyone is forced to use. Similarly, the European Commission had been in discussions with telecoms companies to try and get data from them, but it was all meant to be anonymized. So I guess it would be so useful for you know, individual contact tracing, but maybe it's more to look at general trends in movement and potential for the virus to spread. It's also worth noting that China's approach probably isn't unique and there are other Asian countries that have been using more similar methods. Not so familiar with Singapore and South Korea, but I understand that they have done pretty well at controlling the virus. And I think in part that's been due to good contact tracing measures. I agree with you, Julia. I'm pretty, uh, I think a lot of other Asian countries have also been doing this and pretty successfully. And overall, I'm pretty pessimistic really about uh, the surveillance going forward. Like I think as 
all countries are going to realize if they want to kick the economy back into gear and people want to get out again, it's going to be framed as this uh, exchange, you know, your whereabouts, your sort of information for the freedom to go, go out and about and for the economy to sort of get back on track. Although it's interesting, Singapore, they have this app Trace Together, which supposedly works using Bluetooth and is meant for uh, close contact tracing. But despite using that app for a few weeks, they now have sort of gone back, you know, on a quarantine for a month. So it's not clear really that these apps are clearly not like solutions and, you know, use an app and, you know, everything will go back to normal. It's clear that there's going to be a lot of holes, a lot of false positives, a lot of uh, issues that are going to not make it perfect. But I feel like I can't see a scenario where the world, uh, all countries, whether in Asia or Europe, get back into sort of working, going back to office, going outside without these fairly intrusive health app solutions until at least there's a vaccine. When, because I was in Belgium when the first measures were announced and they were announced until the end of March. And so almost at the same time, you saw all these Facebook events pop up with like post-corona party on 1st of April or, you know, and then when it, when it was moved, it was post-corona party on mid-April. But it's not going to be one day to the next, suddenly uh, everybody's just cool and, and, and goes outside and meets everybody again. There's going to be this transition period. And I, I guess that's what you are all are in right now, right? In China, sort of this transition period where everybody's still feeling very apprehensive, where the government is still using a lot of uh, tracking software to make sure that this, this is really the end of it. So what can people in Western countries look forward to when they have gone past the peak of, uh, of the virus infection in their country? I mean, like if we look at China's coronavirus uh, trajectory, basically there are several things people were looking at it when it was running as course in China versus like when is the peak day, when will the confirmed cases peak? And then after that, you can see confirmed cases, like the speed of growth is slowing down and slowly there will be more uh, cure cases than the confirmed daily confirmed cases. And furthermore, there will be more cure cases than accumulatively confirmed cases. And the death rate um, drop as well. That is, you know, when we knew that China was behind the curve. And um, that first mission was accomplished. Uh, you know, we will have the trench war with the coronavirus. And now it's a new um, issue re reason. Basically, um, it came to the public attention uh, about this asymptomatic cases and how contagious it is. Um, basically, no one has the answer. Um, and in the meantime, like China's experience of revitalizing the economy, as well as controlling the confirmed or new cases of uh, affected coronavirus, this tricky balance is going to go on for a while. And then in the meantime, I think the world is watching China very closely. Yeah, and I just add to that, it is a really challenging time for the government to know how much to you know, encourage people to go back to normal. Um, they really don't want a second wave, but they also need to keep the economy going. I remember there was a study that some researchers at Imperial College London produced which was quite influential in getting the Johnson government to change to a stricter approach to enforcing self-isolation and trying to suppress the virus and they had put as one of the scenarios in their report that the virus you know, might persist for a long time and because you just can't 
keep people under quarantine for you know a year that maybe there would be this kind of system where you have a two or three month period of quarantine and then people are allowed out for a bit and then cases start to rise and then the quarantine is enforced again and so it would be this kind of alternating system for potentially a year or even more so that is one possible scenario if herd immunity levels are not high enough to really keep the virus permanently at bay. I'm quite interested to see what approach the government takes here in China, particularly with respect to intra-country travel, the quarantine system that we talked about, where if you're going from a province to another province, having to quarantine, I think that's still in place, at least for Beijing, if you come from elsewhere, you have to quarantine. That's going to restrict a lot of movement and potentially be very damaging to the tourist industry. Yeah, while they're still trying to get a lot of people back to normal and factories up and running, kind of getting local economies going, I think that's one uh, sector, travel sector, that's going to be suffering for quite a while. Yeah, I was talking to a friend yesterday and she tells me that she, she works for a uh, conference organizer. So they do a lot of conferences and workshops and she says that everything has been canceled uh, sort of indefinitely. The economic implications, I think, are not going to really be f- seen for a while. I think it's going to be a, a domino slowly falling down uh, over the next few weeks and months until we really get a sense of how bad it is. And I mean, you mentioned travel. My big question is, I wonder is how international travel is going to come back. Is there going to be new kind of health visas that everyone has to do? Uh, maybe once, you know, uh, test kits get are more widely available and cheaper to do, you know, will we have to do tests when we travel uh, internationally? I think that's that's a big question. Just how, how exactly is uh, international travel going to come back on? I mean, we can see right now the world have basically have two solutions, two kinds of solutions. Um, countries like China have this kind of snappy but brutal that kind of control measures where they just locked everything down, give everyone like, you know, testing a test kit, uh, send the best um, medical resources to a local region and to get it over with and then try to start an economy. So that is the model one. The other model is um, Europe, um, you know, London, uh, some Scandinavian country as well, trying to flatten the curve. Uh, basically, just an ice age model where you have the bad uh, period when people need to hide a little bit, and when the numbers go down, that is a good period, and probably there's going to be some economic um, activities. The question is exactly as Deb pointed out: is how to harmonize those two, um, you know, solutions and the consequences. Mm, most likely like economically and how it impacts people to be people exchange commercial exchanges and supply chain globally as well great i i think we can go on on this forever it's super interesting but i'm gonna have to close because does anybody have anything they'd like to end on any final uh comments that you'd like to add before we go into recommendations um yes we can see there are a lot of like fantasia that is we, we know as the uh, political, international political arena, um, which is hugely disappointing and frustrating. But in the meantime, during the global pandemic, we can see the like glimmer of hope that we know as the hu- human solidarities. Um, at the height of the coronavirus uh, in China, I know a lot of the overseas Chinese and people, like China hands, were trying to help 
um, rally the medical resources and send to Wuhan and send to different parts of China. And now we are working together to do the same thing, but reversely, like I'm sending, um, you know, masks and uh, medical supplies to different parts of the world to my friends. So in this difficult times, very human solidarity is very uh, cherished and give us, uh, give us hope. Yeah, it's a great note to end on. Julia or Dev, anything that you'd like to mention? Any, any other things that caught your attention? Dev, is there anything you'd like to say about India's approach? Uh, Julia, same for the UK. Well, on India, I would say, I think that um, there's going to be uh, multiple second waves that are going to hit uh, poorer countries later on. Uh, countries that right now can't even afford to buy test kits, so we don't even hear the numbers um, I think once Europe and the U.S. maybe get out of this initial crisis, I think South Asia, Southeast Asia, the poorer parts of Southeast Asia will get a lot more attention. I've been following this now for the last couple of months being living here, and I'm not very optimistic about uh, how fast things will improve. And even in China, right, even here with all the strict measures in place, you can see how gradual and how phased, uh, you know, coming back to work is and how many sort of checks and balances there are just for like circuit breakers in case we all have to go back. So a lot of questions uh, for how this is going to evolve, but I'm not very optimistic for things really getting back to quote-unquote normal for well past a year. Yeah, I think it is uh, really hard to overstate the, the magnitude of this pandemic and the impacts it will have on the world. I think just yeah, stepping a bit back from China and the kind of things we're seeing in our individual lives. One of the things to watch will be what this means for international relations. Are we going to see a lot of countries becoming more closed, you know, moving supply chains back home to improve resilience of their economies because of the economic recession that we're going to see, parties on the right of the political spectrum doing better, people feeling less friendly towards foreigners coming in. And then in terms of China and its relationship with the world, I think you're already seeing it trying to control the narrative and show how China is helping other countries to cope. And China was able to suppress it really quickly. So now trying to share learnings and aid with other countries but there's still going to be a lot of questions asked uh, rightly by other countries about the problems of you know suppressing information that meant that the virus could spread for uh, longer than it should have uh, without people really paying attention i think that the more negative the economic and um, health effects are in other countries, the more inclination there's going to be to blame and uh, resent China. Yeah, that's a really important observation, Julia. I, speaking from uh, watching this media space in India, I know that there's actually a very uh, large um, rising tide in anger and frustration with China. They've almost taken the sort of worst of the Republican right uh, in the US uh, when it came to like Chinese virus, Wuhan virus, and taken that to even, you know, more extreme level. Recently, we, I've even seen very 
normally level-headed, let's just say, uh, influential, well-known figures in academia, journalism, really turn pretty pretty uh, angry towards towards China in their rhetoric, both for the sort of initial cover-up, but also the uh, large amount of propaganda and, in some cases, disinformation that's coming out as well. So I kind of fear for what implications this might have for the India-China relationship and and possibly, uh, you know, China's relationship with uh, other parts of the world as well. Let's end with recommendations. So what are the recommendations you can give in terms of what to listen to, what to read, to stay on top of everything? Um, Julia, let's start with you. Sure. So my recommendation would be to follow Tyler Cowan, who's an economist at George Mason University. And he has a podcast and a blog called Marginal Revolution and an active Twitter account. And he is really actively following the coronavirus and doing a lot of reading, a lot of signposting to different materials so I get updates pretty much on a daily basis from his blog. I would recommend two podcasts um, to basically tell the personal side of the story behind the numbers. One is from Rough Translation. It's called WeChat from the Future. It's a story about the wife is a ABC American-born Chinese. She has family in Wuhan. Her hometown is Wuhan. So even though she was in America, she was very anxious about what's been happening. And then she was trying to hope in any way, um, you know, so she was like staying on WeChat group and feeling more and more anxious in January and February. And then her husband is like an Italian American. So he didn't understand why she was so worked up and, you know, a little bit upset about her nerve. And not, it's not until that the virus hit Italy that her husband realized that, oh, actually, this is a very serious thing. So the podcast is, presents a very interesting um, topics that we have been discussing is when the news come out of the television or podcast and becomes a personal experience and people experience uh, news stories differently. It was not until it becomes personal that it's real. So this is the first one. The second recommendation is um, the daily, the New York Times daily podcast. Uh, March 29th podcast is called What I Learned When My Husband Got Virus. It's um, this New York Times uh, journalist. Unfortunately, her husband got the coronavirus and she had to, her husband got quarantined at home and she had to take care of her, her husband as well as taking care of her daughter and the very vivid and depressing struggle she's going through. Um, so like when people talk about like in a very uh, diminishing way about, oh, don't worry, it's just, um, it's just a cold, it's the influenza. Um, I would suggest people listening to this podcast about the pain that this healthy 50-something-year-old man is going through. Um, and hopefully this guy has recovered. Um, it's definitely not pleasant. And please, you know, take care of yourself. Yeah, great recommendations. Um, I will add two more. There's a newsletter that I, two newsletters uh, that I subscribe to. Um, one is called the Corona Daily. It comes at you once a day with commentary and curation of really good uh, reports, articles, data, papers. 
I find it very useful to be able to sort of avoid the news and the headlines because there's so much noise and there's not much signal. And it's, I prefer uh, these curated newsletters that come to me uh, with information. Uh, so it's called Corona Daily. And then the other one's called The Syllabus, uh, which is run by Jeannie Morozov. And it's really excellent collection of, uh, let's just say, longer, more in-depth uh, analysis into the situation uh, from every angle, politics, you know, economics, technology, philosophy. Uh, there are some really great reads. And again, it's going beyond the headline or the sort of what's happening today with a much more deeper perspective, which is pretty useful uh, to help like make sense of everything and to avoid having to constantly, uh, you know, check the news for what's going on. On a lighter thing, I would say is, you know, something that I started doing more when I was at home in the early days of quarantine is to work out at home. And uh, there's a great app called Keep. Uh, which K that's just K E E P, uh, which is a pretty cool uh, Chinese work from home app. It's free and there's a lot of there's a lot on it uh, that you can use. And I also I also did uh, started to practice or learn from scratch uh, some more Chinese cooking. Uh, and there is a, a great YouTube account uh, called uh, Chinese Cooking Demystified. It's run by a friend of a friend. He's based in uh, Guangdong. And he knows his uh, Chinese food really well and he explains it really nicely in an easy to follow way for a sort of an audience either uh, not based in China or with not much knowledge about Chinese cooking. So that was really cool, uh, cool resource. Yeah, I wanted to actually mention something else. Uh, was trying to get Dev to promote this himself, but he's too modest. So just wanted to mention his excellent China-India networked newsletter, which, uh, as you can tell from the title, is all about um, developments in China and India and what they can learn from each other and uh, the relationship between them. Julia, you are too kind. <laughs> no, it is it is a great newsletter. Thanks, Julia, for mentioning that. I'm going to give my own recommendation as well. It's um, to go to fightcovid19.hku.hk. It's a knowledge hub by the University of Hong Kong. Now, full disclosure, I am affiliated with uh, with HKU, but not with this project. Uh, so go check it out and uh, and stay on top of the news. Uh, well, thanks everyone. That was that was great. Um, very very insightful. Uh, and I hope to hear more from you. Uh, on our Young China Watchers outlets to let everybody know what it's like in China and what we can expect in the West. Thanks, Sam. Um. Thanks very much, Sam. Um. Great to talk to you. Thank you for this great talk. For more information on Young China Watchers, have a look at our website on Facebook and connect with a chapter near you. My name is Sam Columby. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions.